You are listening to a podcast from Rocky Mountain Christian Ministries. For more information about our church, please visit us at rmcmchurch.org. You can turn over to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. So we've been in this study on freedom uh, for several weeks now. And I'm going to do a very brief review this morning. If you have not been here, you really need to go back and um, pick up the, you know, we have podcasts, we have YouTube archives. Uh, you can pick these things up very easily and, and go through. We've laid an awful lot of foundation over the last several weeks. This is the fifth week of this series. But uh, last week or over the last couple of weeks, we looked at Galatians chapter 3, which we're in this morning. Verses, we looked at verses 2 through 5. And basically out of that, um, I'm not going to even read through the verses. You'll just have to look this stuff up on your own. But we, Paul asked the question, you know, he, he said to the Galatian churches, He said, so let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the works of the law, by keeping the details of the law, or by hearing the word, hearing the message? Obviously, the answer is they received the Holy Spirit. They were born again. He includes in there, he said, you know, were you born again? And did God work miracles among you because you kept the the rules or because you received the word by faith? And the answer is that they received the word by faith. And then he says, so how is it that you think that now having been, I'm going to paraphrase, been born again by putting faith in Jesus Christ and in his words, that happened, you you acknowledge that. How is it that you think you're going to grow to maturity through works, through the keeping of, of the law? How is it that you're going to move back under law after coming out to faith? And that's Paul's question to the church. And again, we said last last week, we are born again. And most of us, I mean, we fully agree with this. We are born again one way. And that's by the grace of God and our putting faith in what Jesus Christ did at the cross. It's the only way to be born again. It's the only way to salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. Either that's the truth or he was a liar. There's no other, there's no other way around that. Jesus said that. So we acknowledge that, but then for many of us, after we get born again, we fall into this thing of thinking that maturity, and we might not think this real consciously, but but we start to think that maturity means I read my Bible X amount, I go to church X amount, I give X amount, I I serve in this way, I, I do these Christian activities, which are all good activities and should be characteristics of every believer's life, but they should be fruit that's born of a relationship with the Lord. They in and of themselves, all these works, anything you can name, uh, you know, keeping certain ceremonies, doing certain things, those are are not Uh, how we grow to maturity. We grow to maturity the exact same way we got born again by putting faith in Jesus Christ, receiving from his grace and and having relationship with him. So Paul makes those those points. And in Galatians chapter three, verses um, 
We looked at verse 10, we looked at verse 21, we looked at verse 22. We saw that one of the primary reasons for the law being given was to show us that we needed a Savior, that we are incapable of keeping perfectly a set of rules, all right? But at the same time, God actually designed us to live by faith. God designed us with this ability and this, we, we all do it, whether it's faith in God or faith in something else, we live by what we trust and believe in. We live out of that part of our being. So the fact that salvation comes by faith and not by keeping a certain set of rules, the fact that fact opens salvation up to every human being because we're designed with this ability to live by faith, all right? And then finally, uh, this morning in verses 21 through 25 of Galatians chapter 3, all right, we saw that the scripture says that there were purposes for the law, and one of them was that it kept us under guard. It kept us, the, the terminology there from the Greek means we were kept under military guard or in protective custody. That's the that's the term I like. The law was established. The Ten Commandments and the other laws that God gave, all right, were, were established to keep Israel safe. If you stayed within that structure, moving forward toward the day when Messiah would come and we could enter into a new covenant, it at least defeated uh, sins work in your life to a big degree. It kept people in this protective custody. There were boundaries. There were places you could go and places you couldn't go. And because of that, and because of the activity of God with Israel, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jehovah God, his ways, his purposes, all of that existed in the earth, didn't get stamped out and torn apart and replaced by the devil. It kept coming forth to the point where Messiah could come. And so that was really important. And then in verse 24, specifically of Galatians chapter 3, it says that the law acted as a guardian. The term there is schoolmaster. And again, I think I've said this to you a couple times. That doesn't mean the principal of the school. It was the guy who went along with the kids and got them to school safely. It was the person who acted as, he, he guarded them along the way. He would have been their crossing guard. He went with the family. He was a servant, and he went with the family. That's how the law worked. Again, it brought this protection to get us to something, to get us to something else. The law was never designed to be the be-all, end-all of what God would give. It, it illustrated holiness. It illustrated who God is. It illustrated a lot of his nature. It showed us for sure that we can't do it without a Savior. We can't keep it perfectly, inwardly and outwardly. We can't do it. And so we, then we come and we turn from that point and we say, God, help us. And, and he did. He sent a Savior who died in our place, who carried our sin to that cross so that we can now live in him. And that's what we're gonna, that's what we're gonna talk about uh, this morning. I want you to go to verse 13. We're gonna look at verses 13 and 14 this morning of Galatians chapter three. To me, in the whole book of Galatians, and there is a lot said in the whole book of Galatians regarding legalism and freedom and the grace of God. It's an incredible, incredible book. There's a lot said. To me, this is the heart of it right here. These verses right here establish the heart of what Paul was trying to get across. The Holy Spirit was trying to get across to people. And uh, I'm in Psalm 
25. So let me let me move into Galatians. This will be helpful uh, for me to be able to read it along with you. So, so in Galatians 3, verse 13, many of you have probably, you know, memorized, meditated. I hope you have meditated these verses. Uh, they are so powerful. So we're going to look at them and we're going to start to break down what's said here. All right. I'm reading again today. I, I just like the way the New Living Translation um, brings this out. They're all good, but at any rate, for whatever reason, this one stood out to me this this time around with these verses. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, it says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles, that's all of us or most of us, uh, with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. All right, so another thing that law always does is law, natural law or, or spiritual law, it always draws a line between what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, and also between uh, living in a way uh, within the law that will bring blessing to your life. That will, and some of you may have to take this out of the context of every single law that's on the books. In the, you know, you may not agree with some of the ones that are in the earth. Let it go. Okay, think about the principle with me. It draws this line between a life that is that brings opportunity, it brings blessing, it it sets you free, it keeps you out of trouble, it does all that. And on the other side of it, there's a life that's going to bring negative consequences when you violate that law or that principle. When you violate that law, there are going to be negative consequences. There are going to be bad things that come into your life. And essentially, the law, God's law, set that up. And so we're going to look at it later, but in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord goes to extremes to make clear to Israel that there is blessing on the side of walking in uh, the law, walking in God's will, God's ways, everything that's established in the law, there's blessing there. It already exists there. It's not even a reward for doing the right thing. And this is something we need to understand on every level. When we do the right thing, we're not earning, this, this goes back to what we just talked about, right? We are never earning anything with God. Because honestly, aside from the blood of Jesus, our unworthiness, when we are living in the sin condition, when we are separated from God, will, I don't care how good a person you are, the negative is going to outweigh. Because what did we say? It tells us, I believe it was back in, in verse 10. It tells us the thing about the law is you got to keep it all. And you got to keep it perfectly. If you violate one part, even in your head, you violated the whole thing. 
All right? So there's no way we are earning anything with God by doing the right things. The right things are supposed to be fruit of the relationship with God. So law established this place. There's blessing inherent on the word, the ways, the principles of God. When we walk in them, does I'm not saying life is perfect by any means because we still live in a fallen planet. There's still a devil loose. There's still a thief trying to steal from you. There's all of that going on, but there is blessing already on God's word. There is life already on God's word. So when we walk in the word, when we walk with God, it's there. And it always was. And the law established that. And so on the other side of that, there was what's referred to as the curse of the law. It's if you're not walking under the law, there's all these negative things you are going to draw into your life. And it's nobody's fault but your own at that point. You are, you are walking in a way that just puts you in a stream of negativity. And in Deuteronomy 28, we have 14 verses. We may get to them later today, I don't know, that establish the blessing of the covenant and the blessing that's over the law. And it's worth reading because as we come into the new covenant, all of that's still there. We don't live it by law, but all of those blessings, if you think through what's said in those 14 verses, it's amazing what God has for our lives, the areas of our life that his blessing comes upon. It says it comes upon us and overtakes it, overtakes us. We're not earning it. We're just walking along with God and it is washing over us. And, and on the other side of that, then there are the rest from verse 15 through verse, I think it's 68 in Deuteronomy 28. There's a delineation of the curse of the law. And it is all the horrible nasty, disease, destructive, decay stuff that is in this earth because, and let's go back a little farther. So in Genesis, I think when we read where, where Adam and Eve violate, where, where they trust the word of Satan instead of trusting the word of God, and God comes into the garden and they're hiding in the bushes because shame has come upon them and they, feel, they, they sense this nakedness and all of this stuff's happening because sin and death have just entered into the earth through their disobedience, all right? Have entered into the earth. And Romans tells us that. Death entered in through sin and all came through one person, all right? But it's here. And we're all born into it after that. God says some things and he says, the ground is cursed because of you. He doesn't say, now I'm mad and so I'm going to curse the ground. He says, the ground is cursed because of what you've just done. You know what? Now you're going to have a real struggle with childbearing. You're going to have a real struggle with bringing forth life, bringing forth fruit. He says to the man, you know what? Now, work's really going to be hard. It was supposed to be, I'm, I'm ad-libbing here a little bit, okay? But the, the context is, it was supposed to be satisfying. It was supposed to be something you and I did together. It was supposed to be a wonderful thing together for you to steward this earth. But you know what? Now, the ground is going to produce thorns. The ground is going to produce this junk. You're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. It'll still produce. Life will still come out of it because God created it, but it's going to be hard, okay? 
he's, this was the result of sin, not a temper tantrum by God. And I think a lot of times we read it that way. And it's the same thing when we see this, the curse of the law. God gets really mad when we, you know, when we covet our neighbor's stuff. No, when we covet our neighbor's stuff, we walk out of the flow of blessing and into the flow of the curse of the law, okay? And even as we're living under the new covenant, we're not living this by law. We're living this by the spirit now, but it's still true. The, The verse that says the wages of sin is death is in the New Testament, Okay, so there's still all this stuff. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but there's still all this stuff uh, that that is there because of this curse. So the law, any law, always draws this line. Okay, it always draws the line. And then the New Testament tells us that there was a price, there was a debt essentially created by mankind's sin. There was a debt created there, and God is a just God. So that had to be paid for one way or another. And one of the things that happened under the law was there was established, there there were moral laws that showed us what holiness looked like. There were social laws that were mostly they were that was there for two reasons. You know, the and and I know online people love to bring these up and throw them at Christians, but we'll look at this in a minute. But anyway, you know, the the don't eat shellfish and the, you know, all all these different uh ha- handle sanitation in your community this way and all of those types of social laws those were there for two reasons. They were there to keep Israel safe. It was part of keeping them safe. And they were there to, they made you, the, a lot of that made Israel unique. And they were, they were a nation you could look at among other nations and they were unique. There was something different there. It drew the eye to what was going on there in order to draw the eye to Jehovah God. Does that make sense? So the social law kind of fell into that. And, and then... Um, and then there were the regulations about sacrifice and the regulations about worship so that sin could be covered. And so that until Jesus came and could do away with the penalty for sin, it could at least be covered. We could move forward. People could walk with God. All right, so all this was put into place. But when Jesus came, God is a just God. And in one way or another, by the shedding of blood, that sin, that that sin that was inherent from the beginning, from Adam and Eve's sin on, it had to be paid for. And any one of us, if I died for you, I can only, I can only die for one other person. I can only, if, if, if that was even possible for me to be the, the sacrifice for your sin, I could still only do that for one other person because I'm only worth one person. I'm one person. But God in his son, was able to lay his life down for all mankind and pay that penalty. And that's what it's talking about when it says he rescued us from the curse of the law. Let's, um, you can look at some of these details about this. Again, that, that term curse of the law, it's a spoken or written declaration of all the negative consequences that entered the earth along with the sin condition at the fall of mankind. Okay, we just talked about that. The blessing of Abraham is a spoken or written declaration of all the benefits that are inherent to living in the will of God and living with God. There are, there's blessing, there's abundant life that comes just by us living uh, with God and for God. 
This term rescued is such an interesting word because it described a process where somebody that had the ability and so they had the position, the authority, and they had the material means, they had the money to be able to go to the slave market and buy somebody at the slave market, to buy a slave for the specific purpose of setting that slave free. So they paid the price for that slave. The slave didn't pay any of it. They did not buy them. And then it was an indentured servant deal. Once you work off this, this payment that I just made, then you can go free. It was, no, I want you free. I have the authority. I have the position in society at that time. I'm not a slave myself. In other words, I have the position, I have the means, I have the material goods, and I'm spending something of myself for the very purpose of setting you free. And the moment that price is paid, you're free. All right? That's what this term rescued means. Jesus laid down his life. He paid the full price. There's nothing left for us to pay. And again, this is where we get these Something it sneaks up on us. We get this. We think, you know, and we even we even sing about "I owe you everything." And honestly, I I get it. I get what that song means. It's fine. I get what it's saying, but it always bugs me a little because I do owe him everything. That's what I mean. I get it. I do owe him everything, but he's not exacting a price from me. I don't have to pay him back for what he did. I can't. And you can't. All of us together couldn't. We don't. And so when we, when we think about our lives and we think about what we're doing, we are, we, are, we are doing things because of what Jesus already did. We're not paying him back by living a good life. We can't do it. We can't do it. And it's not what he's asking. He chose to go to that slave market and to purchase our freedom with his own blood. Whenever we buy anything, or or just think in general terms, the value of an object is established by the purchaser. You know, we always say this, well, well, what's this worth? Well, whatever somebody will pay for it. It's worth whatever somebody will pay for it. It is. You know, that's that's the way our markets work. And if somebody won't pay that for it, then it's not worth that. You can keep the price there all day, but it's not worth that. You know, I, 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 we... You know, you guys know I like these older BMW motorcycles. Well, a lot of those are just going up in value. It's every once in a while somebody will post a thing. Look at this, you know, over in Europe, this, this, you know, 1963 R60 2 just sold for $38,000 or something ridiculous. And, and I mean, but that keeps pushing the value, even the reasonable value up on things because somebody's willing to pay that for that. And everybody's scratching their heads like, you've got to be kidding. But it, and, and then you'll see, I saw one recently where, I don't remember what the bike was, but this guy put this bike out for sale. And uh, it was a ridiculous price. It wasn't, wasn't a real classic or anything. And, and so some people were just kindly asking, why do you have it at that price? That's like double what anybody's paying for those. And pretty soon the guy responded and he said, well, my wife told me I had to sell my bike. So it's up for sale. So he put it at a price nobody would pay. I don't recommend this approach to marriage, by the way. But, but the point is, 
the price that God was willing to pay for you. Don't even think about, I mean, yes, he paid it for everybody. But he paid it for you. And he would have paid it for you. And he would have paid it for me. It, it comes down to that individual price. That price is your value before God. No matter how somebody has treated you, no matter what they have done to you in your life, no matter what somebody might say, all that stuff happens on the earth, but you need to know your value was established by this rescue. Your value before God and in eternity and and right now today was established. And you know what? This is true for everybody. Whether they are, whether they've received the price paid for them or whether they haven't, it's still true of them. And so when we're looking at somebody else and maybe we're seeing things that, you know, we don't think are good in life, we still need to remember the price that was paid for that person and what God's desire is for them. This, this rec- rescue was just a, a huge deal. This is what establishes human value. This is what establishes the value of every person. And man, I think only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we walk in that and see people with the value that the Lord uh, actually, that's what, that's what, that's the value he puts on them. We've got to put the same value on them. We have to. I don't care what disagreements we have. I don't, I don't care. But it says, so Christ has rescued us. He's purchased us out from the curse produced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself, all right? Uh, various translations will say he took the curse upon himself. Uh, I think the Passion Translation, I kind of like that. It says he absorbed the curse. It says he became the curse. It wasn't just that he looked at the curse and kind of picked it up and kept it in one hand. He became. This is such an important point for you to get today. Jesus did what he did as our substitute. He went to that slave market and he, being God, having the value and even more value than the whole human race, gave himself, laid himself down. And in that place, as Messiah, the scripture says this in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places, he actually became sin. He became our sin. Because if he only sort of, I don't know, handled our sin, put it in a backpack, took it to the cross, I don't know how that would work. But if he didn't actually take it the way that that we would carry it, the way that if if we were being held to account for our sin, it's our sin. And the, and the scripture is so serious about the fact that Jesus literally on that cross, he became sin for us so that we can not just, you know, look at and get near, but become the righteousness of God in him. All right, we actually are changed at the new birth. We are changed. We become, we come into him and he comes into us and we become in our spirit a brand new creature. Second, you know, Second Corinthians chapter five tells us all of this. So this whole idea of substitution 
you know, there's a, there's a theological idea about truth, I should say, about substitution. Jesus became our substitute at the cross. He went to the cross for our sin. So he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So there, there are a lot, I mean, we could talk about that all day. There's a lot to that, but we need to understand that as believers now, we always stand, always in right relationship with God because God looks at us in his son. And even when we sin today, now we have the opportunity to repent of that sin, to give that over to God, to to receive forgiveness again. But in that whole process, our position in him and in, in right relationship and acceptance with him it does not waver because it is not based on our works. It is not based on anything we've done or anything we've hoped for. It is based on what Jesus did at the cross. We are in him. We don't come out of him when we blow it one day. It doesn't make sin not important because it still produces death. It still will mess up your walk with God. It will harden your heart. It will violate things in you to make it really hard for you to connect with God What it doesn't change is your position in Christ. It doesn't change your position in Christ. He became our substitute. So that also means he had to experience the fullness of the penalty that we would have. What was the penalty for sin? It was spiritual death. It was separation from God for eternity. So the scripture over in uh, Isaiah 54, you know, I'm going to, there's just a lot we could say about this, but uh, let me just give you a couple. In Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 8, here's what it says. This is the Amplified. It says, this is God speaking. This is, let me just preface this. This is a prophecy to Israel, and it's, but with, with virtually all prophecies, there's an immediate application of that prophecy. There's also a long-term application. There's usually an Old Testament and a New Testament application of that prophecy. And there's an eternal application of that prophecy. All right, so this was spoken through Isaiah about Israel and about God, God's judgment on the nation and bringing them out of that and all that kind of thing. But this, this verse also speaks of what Jesus Christ went through on our behalf. So again, Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 8, In an outburst of wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. What did, what did Psalm 22 say and what did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, David prophesied that. I don't even know, I, don't, I should be a better Bible scholar. I don't know how long that was before the cross. A long time, many, many hundreds of years before the cross. David, who wasn't even a prophet, but spent a lot of time with God, writes out this psalm that details everything Jesus was going to go through at the cross. But Jesus makes a statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't like to think about that. But, but here it is. In an outburst of wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness. So in a moment of wrath, I hid my face from you with everlasting kindness. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, as I swore an oath that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again in the same way I've sworn that, sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. Well, when it's applied to Israel, that didn't come about 
until Jesus was there so that we can enter into this place where he will never again, he says, I will never again be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, nor will my covenant of peace be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So now we live in a place where we have this this righteousness, this uh, place of this atmosphere of peace with God. And it's clear throughout the New Testament, we have that in Jesus Christ because he paid the price to rescue us from the curse of the law. Is this making sense to you? So Jesus, as our substitute, had to pay the same price that we would have paid. He He had to actually, wasn't just being nailed to the cross. And some theologians get mad about this, but it's still the truth. It wasn't just a physical sacrifice. There was that, all right? There was the beating on his back that purchased certain things for us. There was being nailed to the cross in our place. There, but, and there was a physical death, but there was also a spiritual death. There was a momentary separation from the Father. Why? Because if he didn't do that, then he didn't pay the price we would have had to pay. And he did pay the price that we had to pay. And that means there's no price left for us to pay. It's, a, it's, it's an abomination to God for us to try to pay the price in any way, in any level through our own works. It's, a, it's an awful thing. It is, it is not what we are to do. So what does that mean to us? I've only got a few minutes left. So what does that mean to us? It means that if you can find a scripture and you can find a bunch of them, that shows where Jesus became your substitute in an area, then that thing, that area, has no place in your life. It has no right to be in your life. Jesus paid the price for it. You don't have to pay more price for it. You, there's a provision made for you in that. You receive it by faith. You take hold of those scriptures as promises to you. And, and we experience, none of us experience any of this perfectly in this earth because we still live in a fallen world. We've, we get that. But this is what we, we need to be people who grab hold of what the scripture says Christ provided for us in that rescue. Because whatever it is, we do not have to just accept Whatever it is, and we're going to look at a few, whatever it is into our life is just part of life or God's punishing me or, or God's using this to teach me or anything else. You reject it. You rebuke it. It doesn't belong to you. It was paid for. It's not yours. And yes, there's a battle to fight to receive these things. But the truth is, if Jesus died and carried it, we do not. It's never God's will for you to carry something that Jesus carried to the cross. All right? So let's look at a couple. We, always, we already talked about this one, but spiritual death, obviously, is the biggie. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, just quoted it. It says, For he made him who knew no sin, all right? He didn't have any sin of his own. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to be, to become our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is all identity stuff here. 
He changed our identity. We have not just, this is not just a little thing. We have become, again, righteousness means right relationship. It is a position. It doesn't mean perfect behavior. He has, he has accepted us into this position based on what Jesus did. So spiritual death, it doesn't belong to us. We will never be separated from God. So when the devil lies to you, and starts to tell you, God's turned his back on you right now. God is ignoring you. God is because you're not seeing the answer to a prayer or whatever. I mean, we go through these times where it's like, gosh, I'm not hearing from God very well, whatever. Well, the truth is, your position with him hasn't changed and his view of you has not changed. And so we may have to adjust some things to get back to where we're hearing from God. Well, never believe the lie that God has you God has you in a wilderness season where you're just out here in the wilderness and, and you're going along and, and so, you know, you've just got to get through the wilderness. In the wilderness, the presence of God was with Israel day and night and it was manifested day and night. You know, you and I have talked about this a fair number of times. This this is one of those mind blowers for, for Joel. Is it, and for all of us, millions of people were fed and watered day in and day out for 40 years. And it wasn't even the place that God wanted them. He didn't want it to take 40 years, but he was still there. And so I don't even get when people say, Jesus wasn't separate from the Father in his wilderness experience either. I shouldn't take the time. This is just one of my pet peeves. You know, we make these little spiritual statements and it doesn't even make any sense. There's no such thing for you as being separate from God, we may have trouble hearing him. I get it. But that's not the same thing as thinking that God has kind of turned a cold shoulder to you. Okay? The next one, uh, sickness, disease. It was under the curse of the law. We're not going to get there today. I encourage you to go read Deuteronomy chapter 28 this week because we're going to be back in some of this, obviously, next week because I've only got three minutes left. So... uh, you know, go read it. Go read those. Go read what's under the curse of the law. It's awful. But every kind of sickness, disease, decay, destruction you can think of in life is under the curse of the law. You've been bought out from it. So Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. These are substitutionary verses. All right. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we, we estimate, we thought he was stricken, smitten by God. He's on that cross because that's exactly what they said. Well, if he was God's son, I think God would come and save him. Boy, I wouldn't want to be that person. But anyway, we, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But here's the truth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised as our substitute for our iniquities. The chastisement necessary for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Now, back where it says he has borne our griefs, literally from the Hebrew, that word griefs means disease, sickness, long-term illness, wasting decay. Disease, sickness, long-term illness, wasting decay. Why didn't the translator say that? I don't know, but that is what the word means. Look it up. Look it up in any Hebrew dictionary. All right, so this is a sickness and disease verse. He took it so we don't have to. All right, the term sorrows means pain and suffering. 
All right? And it says, and by his stripes we are healed. And a lot of people will tell you, you know, that just means spiritual healing. It just means that. Well, poor Matthew did not know that. The Holy Spirit blew it in, in writing through Matthew in chapter 8, verse 17, in the, in the middle of a whole chapter of Jesus healing this one, healing that one, healing this one, healing that one, healing this one. And Matthew says, this was done to fulfill what the prophet said, that by his stripes we are healed. And they were all physical healings. All right, so either the Holy Spirit got it wrong and your theology is right, or this is a substitutionary verse about sickness and disease. We all in this earth from time to time, I think we can get to where we don't experience any sickness or disease, but for most of us, we still have some, we still fight some. All I'm saying is fight it. It's not your friend. It's not God trying to teach you. It's not God. God doesn't use what Jesus paid such a huge price to set us free from, then God the Father is going to take that and use that as a lesson for you and a teaching tool for you. He doesn't do it. That would be just so that'd be a kingdom divided against itself. Are you getting anything out of this? We got like one or two more. All right. This is the one that really ticks people off. Second Corinthians chapter, not you, but I mean, it, it does. It makes people mad that we say this. Second uh, Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 are both completely about money and about offerings. And, and they're taking up an offering to send to Jerusalem. There's all kinds of instruction there about our giving life. The whole chapters are about that. So there's no pulling out of context. Okay, we're going to look at one verse, but it's totally in context. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, and that word means astronomically wealthy in every way, all right, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, through his substitution, right, might be made or become rich. It's a verse about poverty. It's a verse about lack. Poverty and lack are not God's will. Read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Read the blessings. Read the curse. Abundance is in the blessings. Poverty is under the curse. Now, I know we have all kinds of issues with this, but just, just think, I'm not talking about greed. I'm not talking about living to the, you know, where you're not taking care, you're not stewarding what God has put in your hands well. I'm not saying that every person's supposed to be a billionaire. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a minute. I do believe God has an abundant life for every one of us and his whole heart is for us to become such good stewards and so engaged with him that he can bless us so we can bless other people so that we can build hospitals and we can build orphanages and we can reach the lost and we can take care of our neighbor and we can take groceries to somebody's house and whatever the level, poverty and lack are not God's will for our life and it's a substitutionary scripture. Jesus became, he was rich, he became poor so that we could be made rich. That's what it says. Go look it up. It doesn't say, I don't know why I'm arguing with you. You're probably fine. But I just some of the stuff that comes out and oh my gosh, you know, and prosperity gospel and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know what? The gospel's full of abundance and prosperity. If we misuse that, that doesn't change what the gospel says. I'm sorry. So, okay, one more, and then we're done. I like this stuff. 
I don't know why I sound mad. I love this stuff. I had such a good time this week. Boyd was contacting me about something else while I was doing this. And I'm like, stop texting me. I'm blowing up. I've got to get this stuff out. Um, So last one, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. All right, Hebrews 12, 2. You guys know these verses, but it just says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It says despising the shame. It, it means, it, so when he went to the cross, he was despising the shame. I believe, and that word despising means he, he was making it as nothing. He experienced shame, condemnation, everything that comes with shame. Sin identity, condemnation, uh, the, the sense of worthlessness that comes with shame and drives people to, to try to uh, please other people and to try to be something they're not and, or keeps them just broken and feeling like they're broken. For us. Shame's a horrible thing. And we see it enter the garden, right? That's what had them hiding in the bush was shame. And there hadn't been any before that. It came right in with sin. Jesus took our shame at the cross. We do not have to live in shame. None of us are perfect people, but man, he paid the values in the payment. He paid the price for us. He has an incredible life for us. He loves us on our worst day. We are children of God. We have this abundant life that Jesus has died to give us. We do not have to live in shame. So if things have been done to you that have brought shame into your life, you need to learn to recognize it, first of all. And, and you need to realize it can be a real root like fear or something. Things have been done to you. Other, you've, you've done things, whatever, that have brought shame, condemnation, a sense of unworthiness. I can never be worthy. I can never not be broken. That's a lie. It's an absolute lie. There is wholeness and fullness available because Jesus, when he went to the cross, he had your shame upon him. He had your poverty. He had your sickness. He had your spiritual death. He took it all to the cross as our substitute. If he took it as our substitute, we don't have to take it. If you go in as a substitute teacher, the regular teacher isn't going to be there, right? He's our substitute. Does that make sense to you? Let's stand up and pray this morning. Thank you, Lord. Boy, I needed to get that out. (laughs) You know, it's hard to carry this stuff for days at a time. No, it's really not. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you so much. God, we just, when we look at these kind of verses, every time for all these years, I am blown away, Lord, by what you've done for us and what you've provided for us. It is so much more than you, I mean, from our perspective, than you had to do. It is, it is so much more than we could ever ask. But Father, we choose today to receive it. And I just pray, Lord, where any of these issues have dug into our lives where anybody has a shame mentality, a poverty mentality, a sickness mentality, Father, a a separation mentality. Lord, where any of those things have come upon anybody in the sound of my voice, I pray for their freedom. I pray they'd have a revelation of the rescue. They'd have a revelation of the price paid and be able to fully receive that freedom and begin to walk in it step by step. We thank you for it this morning. And Lord, we want to go share it. We want to go share the freedom you've given us, Father. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. All right, we will be dismissed. We'll have a fellowship time after church next week, and uh, but we'll be dismissed today and see you guys back here tonight at 6. So we're going to say Jesus is Lord over the Gunnison Basin and the world. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord over the Gunnison Basin and the world. Amen. for listening to this message from Rocky Mountain Christian Ministries in Gunnison, Colorado. We hope you will visit us at rmcmchurch.org, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to our messages on YouTube.